0: Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. George Costanza is agonizing over a conversation he had at work. It's been hours since he had that conversation, and suddenly he realizes the perfect comeback. He was at, in a work meeting, he was being bullied by one of his coworkers, and he had nothing to say in the moment. But now that he's had a chance to stew about it for a little bit, the perfect comeback comes to him. So the next day, he goes back to work, goes into that work meeting, confronts his bully, and he says, well, the jerk store called, they're running out of you. And if his words fall upon cricket, it is ill received because it is ill timed. Isn't that frustrating when it happens to you? Surely it has. You're thinking later on about a conversation you had. It's usually when we're trying to fall asleep, right? And then all of a sudden it comes to you what you should have said, what you should have done differently. But the problem is it's way too late. John in chapter 2 in these verses that we're examining this evening gives us such a situation. The disciples were witness to a situation that was confusing to them at the time. But John says there came a point at which they got it, where they understood. And let's hope that we do too. It wasn't a comeback that they were giving back to one of their bullies. It wasn't something they should have said or done differently. And it wasn't too late when they realized it either. The disciples walk with Jesus into Jerusalem. They're going to celebrate the Passover. So they go on to the temple compound. There was the building of the temple, but there was an outer courtyard where people would enter. So they're in the outer courtyard. And what do they see? They see what you would have seen if you walked in there at any major festival on the Jewish calendar. They saw people herding in animals, cattle, uh, cows, sheep, goats, uh, pigeons, doves, etc. Sacrifices to be made in ritual worship. They saw people who didn't have any animals of their own who came to the temple and needed to buy animals in order to sacrifice them. But all they had in their pockets were those Roman coins, you know, the ones with the face of the emperor on it, or on the other side it has the picture of a Roman pagan deity. You can't use those at the temple. That's pagan stuff. So at the temple you have to exchange them for the temple coins. And so there was a table where you could do that, perfectly reasonable. The disciples didn't think that this was anything out of the ordinary, what they saw. But Jesus saw red. He grabs probably some straw, some plantation that the, that the cattle were eating and sitting on, and he twists it together and makes a little whip. What were the disciples thinking when they saw Jesus do this? That takes a few minutes to make a whip out of, out of straw. And then he gets up and then he starts whipping the animals and getting them to leave the temple. And then he turns to the people, starts whipping some of the, the merchants, the money changers, and he overturns some of their tables. Now this episode in Jesus' biography in the Gospel of John has become the favorite of a lot of Christians because it shows how Jesus can be confrontational. He can be our superhero Jesus, our comic book Jesus, our crime-fighting Jesus. This is Jesus being really masculine and getting in people's face. But I think all of those readings of this situation miss the point. The point that the disciples understood, not in that moment, but much later. Months later, perhaps years later, they thought about this very striking event in Jesus' life, and they realized this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because it says in the Psalms, that God's Messiah would be consumed with zeal for God's house. That is, that the Messiah would come and he would be overwhelmed, he would be bubbling over with concern over the true worship of the one true God. And that he would be so bubbling over, so consumed with, with zeal and with jealousy, that he would seek to protect it, just like a husband protects his wife out of jealousy for her when she's catcalled on the street. And so that explains the drastic measures. He's consumed with a priority for what his father in heaven cherishes, true worship. But the way he displays his zeal when he sees that true worship is threatened makes the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, think that he's a threat. They see Jesus as the violent one, as the threat, to their lifestyle. So they confront him. They say, Jesus, give us a sign by which you can show the authority you have to do this. In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you to come in here and mess up what we have going on? You're just some guy from Nazareth, aren't you? Do you have some kind of authority we don't know about? Show us, Jesus. What's wrong? Tell us, Jesus, if you can. What's wrong with people exchanging coins at the temple? So what if they take a little bit of interest so that they're making some money off of this exchange at God's house? So what if we're charging people a little bit more than is reasonable for a sacrifice that they're meant to make in worship of God, and we're making some money off of it? What is that to you, Jesus? You see, Jesus was zealous for God's house, zealous for true worship. The religious leaders who confronted him were zealous for a religious system that kept them comfortable. Jesus was zealous for people coming into God's house, bringing him their prayer and their praise. The religious leaders were zealous for a religious system that kept them on top and the poor worshipers on bottom, and never the two shall meet. So it's worth asking a rather obvious question. Whose side are you on? Oh, I know how you're supposed to say, I know what I'm supposed to say to that. We're on the side of true worship. We're on on God's side. We care about what God cares about. We want to. But sometimes our actions and our behaviors and our words betray a zeal, for sure, but not for God's priorities. Sometimes my actions, my words, my behaviors, my attitudes betray a zeal, not for true worship, but for a religious system that keeps me comfortable. Sometimes our words and our actions betray a zeal, for something that we've grown accustomed to, and that's the only real reason that we're zealous for it. Just look at how sometimes we are tempted to react to sin or suffering. Isn't it with annoyance, with frustration? Look at sometimes how we like to take this story, this very story from Jesus' life, and use this concept of righteous indignation as an excuse for what is more properly called hatred of our neighbor. Because we, as long as we can paint whoever our enemy is as godless, as atheistic, as a sinner, then we have all the excuse in the world to hate them, and we're zealous for that excuse, are we? Or even worse, when the letter of God's word convicts us and slices into our sin and makes us feel guilty, the way that we sometimes react, the way the religious leaders did, whether to the written word in the Bible or to a pastor or to a Christian who is concerned about us, and we say, who are you to talk to me that way? Prove to me that I should listen to you, exactly what the religious leaders said. They asked for proof. That jesus was worth listening to that he had a good reason to be doing what he did and he gave them that proof he gave them a sign to show his authority now what could jesus have done it would have been no no large matter for jesus to just look at someone in the crowd someone who was crippled or blind or had a disease or had a demon and just heal them on the spot there you go in fact the verses before these in John record one of Jesus' most famous miracles when he transformed gallons upon gallons of ordinary, regular water into the finest of wines. That wouldn't have been a big deal for Jesus. But instead, he gives them the big kahuna. He gives them the sign to end all signs. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now what temple were they supposed to think of? This is Jesus' sign, but it is given in an admittedly confusing way. Jesus is standing in front of Herod's temple, talking to religious leaders, and when he says this temple, what temple do you think they're thinking of? They're thinking of the temple that's right there behind them. But Jesus is is using that term in a different way. My body is a temple, your favorite fitness influencer will say. And they will use that as an explanation for why they eat right, why they exercise. My body is a temple, Jesus is saying, and he's using that as an explanation for its destruction jesus is zealous all right he's zealous for his death that's what he says to the religious leaders i have a mission and when you see me complete my mission jesus is saying you will know that you should have listened and the disciples got it eventually Not in that moment, not at all, but it took them months, perhaps years. And they looked back at Jesus' words. It was so confusing to them at the time that it rang out in their heads. And later on, they thought about it and realized that he was talking about his body. That he was using this term, temple, for a place that people traditionally thought that's where God is. But he was using that same term for his body, saying this is where God is. And it's going to be destroyed, and I'm going to raise it in three days. How does that prove Jesus has authority? Well, we've been walking along in this Lenten road alongside Old Testament promises and prophecies that all center on Jesus, that all center on this one event that he summarizes by calling it the destruction and reconstruction of a temple. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection. This is the moment that all of human history hinges upon. This is the moment that all of anyone's expectations, messianic throughout the Old Testament, throughout history, hinge upon. This is the moment when God will prove his authority over your life, will prove his grace to you. And Jesus is zealous for that mission. Because Jesus is zealous for you. What drove him to drive those money changers and those animal sellers out of the temple? It was zeal for God's house because it was also zeal for you. Because Jesus' priority is true worship of God. In fact, he sacrificed his own life so that you could come to God. He sacrificed his own life and rose from the grave to guarantee that you have God's presence, not in a building, not in a location that you have to go visit, like God is a prisoner inside a prison, that you have to come during certain visitation hours, but that God's presence is with you. Wherever Christ's forgiveness and the gracious forgiveness of sins is preached and believed, that God dwells with his people. before we maybe think that Jesus is anti-religion or anti-church or anti-church buildings or anti-pastors or anti-religious systems of any kind, realize that in another place, the Apostle Paul says, it was he, it was Christ who gave the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists. It was Christ's idea that we have a church. Christ is not... Opposed to having organization. But for what purpose? He does oppose religious systems designed to keep people comfortable. He does oppose religious systems designed to keep people away from each other. What Jesus is after, Jesus' zeal, Jesus' priority, is for his church. His body. Paul calls us the body of Christ. He says that Christ gave the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists so that the body of Christ might be built up. So that people can know that their sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. So that people can come to God without having to pay money for it, without having to exchange coins for it. So that people can know that though we have sinned, God has restored us to himself. So that people can live that grace throughout their lives and share it with others. That's Jesus' zeal. And we simply pray, brothers and sisters, that our zeal, that the church's zeal, that pastor's zeal, that Christian's zeal would match our Savior's zeal. Amen.